Hello everyone, welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and it is rapidly approaching Thanksgiving, so what better time is there than to have a Thanksgiving episode? You know, I don't think I've ever really done anything like that in the years I've been podcasting, so we're going to do something a little different, uh, going to be doing historical gaming, specifically in the time of the Pilgrims. So, thou hast played Dungeons and Dragons, now art thou ready to play Puritans and Pilgrims. So let's talk about how you can adapt your D&D game to the time when the Pilgrims arrived in America in the early part of the 1600s. As with many of my historical gaming episodes, when it comes to determining game stats, I will be focusing on Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition because that is the version of the game that I personally am most familiar with. Though there is some information on 5th Edition that I think can be useful. Of course, with 3rd Edition, there is a ton of material out there for that particular version of the game. Uh, 4th edition and 1st edition would probably be the hardest to really adapt to this time period because, again, as far as I know, there wasn't really much out there for those editions that focused on this particular time period, so you're going to have to uh, do a little bit of your own legwork there. So first, who were the Pilgrims? They were Puritan separatists, many of whom followed the Brownist tradition, which was founded by a man named Robert Brown. Those who followed Brown's teachings believed that the Church of England could not be reformed and sought to start a separate church. As Congregationalists, they believed that each church should run independently as much as possible as opposed to having its affairs entirely dictated by the state church. However, Brown spent a relatively short amount of time advocating for this model, and he would eventually rejoin the Church of England in 1584. Still, his ideology survived, and there were people that still supported his congregational model. Thanks to the Act of Uniformity in 1559, it was illegal not to attend church on Sundays or holy days, so neglecting to attend church at those times would result in fines. Because of this, many separatists would either worship in secret or would flee the country. Many resettled in the Netherlands, and while they did enjoy religious freedom there, some of the congregation had a hard time adjusting to the more urban life as well as dealing with the language barrier. Some members were even afraid that their children would be corrupted by the life they led in this new country, which was one of the factors that made them want to seek out a place to call their own. So what did the Puritans believe? In brief, they wanted to purge the Church of England of some of the beliefs and practices that were carried over from Roman Catholicism. 
they believed in original sin and that the devil was always trying to tempt people. Another one of their beliefs was predestination, that some people were chosen to be saved even before they were born. Everyone else was pretty much destined to burn in hell. Those who were saved, or the elect, would go to heaven regardless of whatever deeds they did in life. On the flip side of the coin, those who were doomed to hell could not avoid that fate no matter how many good acts they performed during their lifetimes. But if it is any comfort, it was believed that sinners would not suffer beyond what strict justice required. Nice guys these pilgrims were, huh? The pilgrims set sail in September of 1620 and arrived in November. The local tribes had some experience with the English, and one member, Tisquantum, who is more commonly known as Squanto, spoke English because he had spent time as a slave. Tisquantum acted as a diplomat to the pilgrims and helped teach them the knowledge that they would need to survive. Now, as we move towards discussing Thanksgiving, we should note that Thanksgiving celebrations were not unknown to the Puritans. They were often spontaneous celebrations to celebrate anything from an exceptionally good harvest to a rain shower that ended a drought. The event that would come to be known as the first Thanksgiving occurred somewhere between September 21st and November 11th in 1621. So, the event that we usually call the first Thanksgiving, the one that happened in 1621, lasted three days and was believed to have been attended to by the remaining 50 or so pilgrims, along with about 90 Native Americans. It isn't known exactly what they ate at the first Thanksgiving celebration, but the few first-hand accounts we have mention waterfowl and deer. It is also not known if this feast became a regular occurrence or if it was more or less just a one-time event. A campaign set during this time would focus mostly on exploration and survival. Since they landed in late autumn, with winter rapidly approaching, finding food and building shelter would have been the most important things. We also know that most of Tisquantum's tribe had been wiped out by disease, so it is possible that the pilgrims could have come across deserted villages while exploring. So that leaves uh, some potential for undead in the campaign if you are feeling particularly diabolical. There was also one account where the pilgrims discovered an abandoned European-style house, possibly built by someone who was either shipwrecked or that may have been part of a failed colony. Because remember, the pilgrims who landed at Plymouth in Massachusetts were not the first Europeans to set foot in the North American continent. There were some other attempts before. Now, of course, we do have to talk about the pilgrims and their relationships with Native Americans. While they were friendly towards some tribes... Other tribes were suspicious of the settlers, or even downright hostile. 
some Native American tribes did establish trade relations with the Pilgrims, mainly because they were looking for allies in their struggles against opposing tribes. The Native Americans had food, and the Pilgrims had guns. Unfortunately, the day would come when any ties of friendship were broken, and sadly, you know what happened after that. Still, I don't see any reason why the Game Master couldn't let players have Native American as well as Pilgrim characters. Again, using Tisquantum as an example, a Native who spoke English would be a valuable party member because he could act as an interpreter and diplomat. So a Native American character in this campaign should probably have a better than average charisma. That would also be another important part of the early part of this type of a campaign. Not only would you have to get food and shelter, but you would also have to do some diplomacy, some role-playing to try to establish relationships with local tribes and possibly other colonies. Now, if you do play 2nd edition D&D, I would like to recommend the historical reference book, A Mighty Fortress. It covers the time period from 1550 to 1650, so it is within the time frame that we will be discussing today. So first, let's take a look at some of the classes. Of course, fighters are going to be easy to implement in this type of campaign. They would be your town militia as well as your hunters. One of the most well-known members of the Mayflower was Miles Standish. He was an English soldier who served as the Pilgrim's military advisor and later their commander. Back in England, at the time, all able-bodied men between the ages of 16 and 60 received some military training so they could act as a reserve army if the need arose. Several times a year, they would be called for something called a muster, where they would go through drills and have their equipment inspected. Things were no different in the New World. Since they were in a new land with no established army to protect them, any man would need to be prepared to fight to defend the colony. Pilgrims, who were not professional soldiers, would have likely at least been trained in the use of the musket and the pike. Now, the ranger, honestly, I would probably only recommend it as an option for Native Americans because, while hunting, fishing, and wilderness survival were very important skills back then, I think the idea of this warrior who protects the wilderness and sees it in a very spiritual, religious way would be out of place for the pilgrim. Though, if you do have a player who wants to play a ranger-like character, then the Mighty Fortress sourcebook does have a fighter kit called the Forester. So that would actually be pretty useful. As I recall, the their main abilities is they do get the Move Silently and Hide Shadow abilities similar to a ranger's. Next, the Paladin. Now, while the Pilgrims were a very religious people, I wouldn't recommend Paladins. As far as I can tell, there really wasn't anything similar to a chivalristic code among the Puritans. 
And honestly, what I know of Puritan beliefs, I really don't think that particular mindset lends itself very well to the concept of a holy, lawful, good warrior. Next, the monk. Really wouldn't recommend the monk for this type of campaign. While many Native Americans did practice wrestling, there really isn't much evidence in the way of a codified system of unarmed combat among natives or even the pilgrims. Plus, the Puritans often encouraged themselves to avoid anything that was seen as an idle activity. Participation in competitive physical activity would have probably been seen as a waste of time, so most pilgrims preferred to get their physical activity through manual labor. Another class I wouldn't really recommend is the thief, at least not in the role of a criminal or spy. Now, you could give a wilderness-related background, like the scout kit from the second edition Complete Thieves book, or the scout archetype from 5th edition's Xanathar's Guide to Everything, and they could work as a good hunter due to their stealth abilities. Another reason I really wouldn't recommend thieves is because early on in a colony's history, thievery would not have been a desirable behavior. Since everyone would needed to work together, a thief character might cause a bit too much disruption in the colony. So they could probably be more appropriate later on, after the colony has grown and established itself and is on more stable footing. Now the bard, on the other hand, I could see that working. The Puritan bard would need to focus mostly on singing and poetry. Puritans weren't necessarily opposed to music, but they believed that it needed to be used for spiritual and religious purposes. So I would see a Puritan bard more akin to the music director at a church as opposed to the wandering entertainer or the jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none, that we see in most Dungeons & Dragons campaigns. His role would be to provide songs for use in religious services, not for idle entertainment, because again, the Puritans tended to believe that you should avoid anything that didn't have any practical use and that was a waste of time. So in building a Puritan bard, I would probably not allow them to have the thieving abilities but I would give them religion as a bonus skill. I also don't think it would be too unbalancing to give them magic abilities, but their spells would need to be limited to protective magic and anything that could conceivably be the result of a prayer. So if you're playing a like second edition, for example, where they the bard had access to just wizard spells, I could allow them some access to minor clerical spells, like Bless is an example I can think of off the top of my head, though I would recommend delaying their ability to learn magic until later levels, similar to a paladin or ranger. Now we move to the priest classes, the cleric and the druid. Now I could see allowing modified versions of druids, even though that particular class is primarily connected to European history. Initially, I would certainly limit the Druid to any Native American character, 
and clerics would be limited to the pilgrims. Now, with Native American religion, again, we have to understand that Native Americans are a diverse group of people. And since there's hundreds of different Native American tribes, they're going to have a lot of different beliefs. Now, there's going to be some overlap. At least as far as I know, a lot of Native American religions did place an emphasis on nature being sacred and holy and almost spiritual. But not all tribes necessarily had an organized system of religion, which is why I think a modified Druid could work as a Native American character. And again, the cleric, since it's based primarily on like the Knights Templar and orders like that, that would be more appropriate to the pilgrims. As far as armor, you could definitely allow a Puritan cleric to use any armor like a normal cleric. However, I wouldn't necessarily limit them to just the use of non-edged weapons. Whereas a Native American druid character would be, of course, limited to the weapons that were available among his people. Club, staff, spear, bow and arrows, daggers, and knives. It is unlikely that a pilgrim, though, would adopt Native American ways, which is another reason why I think it would be best to keep them more towards the clerical side of things. Now, many Native Americans, though, would eventually convert to Christianity. Historians have speculated that one of the reasons may have been due to the disease outbreaks that started around 1616. Europeans brought diseases with them that were unknown in the Americas. So unfortunately, the native population hadn't built up a defense or a tolerance against them. Their traditional medicine and religious practices did not protect them from the diseases, so many natives may have turned to the church for help, perhaps believing that this new religion would be able to help them recover. Though converting to Christianity doesn't, didn't always mean giving up all of the tribe's old ways. We do know that there were Native Americans on Martha's Vineyard that did convert to Christianity, though they did keep many of their traditional cultural practices intact. Finally, we move on to the wizard. This class is probably best suited as an NPC as actually being a wizard player character could prove dangerous. Now, I know the Mighty Fortress sourcebook does have a character class for a type of character called a white wizard, where they were said to be, use more scientific formulas and scientific means to cast their spells. But while that may have been seen as acceptable in some parts of continental Europe, among the Puritans... It was witchcraft, so thus it was something that needed to be punished. So, of course, there was this belief in witchcraft, not only in, back in Europe, but also in North America as well. Though, of course, we know now that people who were accused of being witches really weren't witches and how we would define them. Oftentimes, Things like crop failures, sudden illness, bad luck, and anything that couldn't be easily explained were usually blamed on witches. 
There were two known cases of witchcraft that occurred in the Plymouth colony, but both of the accused were found innocent and the accusers were actually fined for giving false statements. The second, I know the second edition complete Wizard's Handbook does have a kit for witches. And actually, if you are playing some of the later versions of D&D, I could see a warlock as being an appropriate model for a witch-type character or NPC. Now, as far as the magic they could do, I would focus on the things they were believed to be able to do. Cast curses, enchant people, ruin crops, bring bad weather, and minor acts of necromancy. Raising the dead probably wouldn't be very appropriate, but some of the less dramatic spells could work. As a general rule of thumb, anything that could be chalked up to bad luck or coincidence probably could work as a witch spell. Well, next let's discuss some of the types of equipment, the armor and weapons that are going to be available to pilgrims. Now, they did actually use armor still. A common type of armor in use at the time was the buff coat. This was a weather-resistant coat made of thick layers of leather. Buff coats were usually worn under plate armor and provided a small amount of protection against cutting weapons. Along the same lines is the gamison, which is a type of armor made from quilted cloth. So using these as a model, we could allow them to function like leather armor or padded armor. And again, at this time, though they were usually worn under plate mail armor as opposed to chain mail. Because as far as I know, I don't think chain mail was really as, in, as much in common use at this time. Artistic depictions do show some pilgrims wearing armor, usually a helm and a breastplate, although they didn't usually wear anything to protect the arms and legs. So I would give this type of armor, this cuirass, the same amount of protective ability as chainmail, maybe banded mail, if worn in conjunction with a buff coat or a gamison. If you're just wearing just the breastplate, and helm itself, maybe something more equivalent to hide armor. Now, there were a couple different types of breastplates they would wear. The original kind didn't look too much different than the normal breastplate we would see worn with plate mail. The problem with this type of armor, though, is it could be challenging for a marksman to use it because the butt of the musket tended to slide around, which would make it take longer to get ready to shoot. Now, later versions of this armor did have a small piece of metal added to the shoulder to make it easier to secure the butt in place. Now, while preparing for this episode, I watched a YouTube video that featured an archaeologist demonstrating the use of a matchlock rifle. He did mention that while this little ridge on the armor didn't necessarily improve his accuracy, it did make it a lot easier for him to shoulder the rifle so he could fire it. He also used a short staff with a U-shaped hook on one end and a short spike on the other. 
So what the user would do is they would drive the spike into the ground and then rest the rifle in that little U-shape to steady his aim. And using this particular staff, I'm not sure exactly what it was called, but I could see it giving a plus one attack roll bonus because of the extra stability, and if necessary, it could be used as an improvised weapon. Guns would be your primary weapons. So matchlock muskets and flintlock rifles were in use around this time. There were also flintlock pistols, as well as the blunderbuss, an early type of shotgun. So these are statted out in A Mighty Fortress, and I know that the 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide does also include some examples of early firearms. However, one thing we have to keep in mind is that these early firearms were not as reliable as modern guns are. And something like a, a matchlock would be difficult, if not impossible, to use in rain or in windy weather. So there are a couple of things you need to keep in mind while using these types of early firearms. Since these are muzzle loaders, I would treat them similar to a heavy crossbow in that you can only fire once every other round. So you'd have to spend a round loading and then spend the next round firing. Now this might seem unreasonable, but an experienced marksman might be able to fire once every 20 to 30 seconds, while an inexperienced gunner might take a minute or more to load and fire one shot. To help speed up loading time, a gunner might wear something that was known as an apostle belt over his shoulder. This belt had 12 wooden canisters with the required amount of gunpowder needed per shot. They would also carry a separate horn filled with extra powder. They would carry the shot and wadding in pouches. After loading the materials in the barrel, they would need to use a ramrod to pack it down. Finally, the gun was ready to fire. At least in theory. As these early guns didn't always fire once you pulled the trigger. So when using these types of weapons, I would require a dex check to load the gun. And I would say about a 1 in 6 chance of a misfire, though I would dramatically increase that to 2 in 6 or maybe even 3 in 6 under windy and rainy conditions. So aside from that, you're going to see a lot of weapons that could double as tools, like knives, hammers, and hand axes. Now there are also depictions of pilgrims carrying other weapons. Those who preferred swords would likely have a saber or rapier. They did also make use of pole arms like the halberd and the pike, as these two weapons still saw use in warfare at the time especially the pike. A common formation was the pike and shot formation, which consisted of both pikemen and gunners. Now remember, since firearms were slow to reload and weren't always reliable, the gunners would need protection while they reloaded and, and aimed their shots. So that's what the pikemen would do. They would try to keep any enemies at bay while the gunners got ready to fire. Another type of small blade that was in use around this time was the plug dagger. So it would function more or less like a normal dagger, but the 
thing that was special about it is it was designed to quickly be plugged into the end of a rifle so you could use it as a bayonet, effectively turning the bayonet into a spear. And of course, there would be the different types of weapons Native Americans would use, primarily war clubs, spears, bows, arrows, and daggers and knives. Though, as mentioned before, the Native Americans were not opposed to using firearms, as they would. that's one of the things they often wanted to trade with European colonists. Now, the Pilgrims celebrated their first Thanksgiving with a tribe called the Wampanoag, and I probably did not pronounce that correctly. They are one of the Algonquin peoples, so we can draw upon their folklore for determining what types of monsters we could use in this campaign. And again, the mispronunciation disclaimer is in full effect here. I am probably not going to be pronouncing some of these names up ahead. So first, there were the Pukwugi. This was a race of fairy-like creatures that often stood about knee-high. These creatures were said to be very mischievous. Sometimes they only played practical jokes, but other times they could be downright cruel. However, they could be helpful towards people who treated them with respect. Legends about them vary, but it's said that they would be able to turn invisible, shapeshift into different types of animals, including bears and cougars, and make people forget things. I would stat them out as goblins, but I would also give them the ability to use spells like invisibility, shapeshift, and forget once per or twice per day each. However, their shapeshift ability would be limited to normal animals that were common to the lands that they inhabited. Their opposite was the Nicomo. These were also a type of little person who lived in the forest, but they were seen as benevolent as opposed to mischievous. So I could see giving them more or less the same types of abilities, uh, maybe give them the ability to use some types of beneficial magic, like cure light wounds or protection from evil, remove curse, things like that. And again, they would be more good aligned as opposed to neutral or even evil. There was also a belief in some tribes of creatures called horned serpents. So these were large serpent-like creatures with horns. So horned serpent is not just a clever name. These huge creatures inhabited lakes and rivers. Belief in these creatures was more common, though, around the Great Lakes and among the southeast, though I wouldn't see any issue with using them in the New England area. They're supernatural creatures as opposed to normal animals. They were said to possess a variety of powers including control weather, hypnosis, shape-shifting, invisibility, and even healing. So I would stat them out as gold dragons, but I would make them more neutral instead of lawful good. There was a belief among some tribes that they could be powerful allies, but you would first have to either win the serpent's favor or defeat it in battle. Some tribes also believed in a creature called the Thunderbird, 
which I talked about in episode 260 on the Wild West. So just to recap, you could stat it out as either a phoenix or a rock because there seems to be a bit of variation with how different tribes viewed the Thunderbird. At least as far as I could tell from when I was getting this episode together and the Wild West episode together, some Native Americans just saw the Thunderbird as a large bird that didn't really behave that much differently than any other bird of prey, except they could prey on people. However, other tribes saw the Thunderbird as very sacred, as a a messenger of the Great Spirit who would help people and protect them from evil. You could also incorporate the Wendigo into the campaign. Now, as far as I could tell, the belief in the Wendigo was more common among tribes in eastern Canada and around the Great Lakes, but tales of the Wendigo could have spread through the various Algonquin-speaking people. These creatures were said to symbolize greed and gluttony, because no matter how much it eats, it's never full, and it always wants more. According to scholar Basil Johnston, the Wendigo was not to the point of emancipation. Its dissected skin pulled tightly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion, the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed deep back into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a knot skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from separation to the flesh. The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. Most of the artistic depictions I've seen of the Wendigo showed as having a beastal head with antlers similar to a deer, though I'm not sure if this is an authentic description or merely artistic license. And you could do a couple of different things with the Wendigo. You could have it as a separate type of creature, uh, in which case I would probably stat it out similar to like a Yeti, or you could have it as a spirit that possesses people and causes them to engage in acts of murder and cannibalism. Now, if we go back to the pilgrims and their side of things, they believed in a variety of demons and devils, so it wouldn't be too terribly out of place to have those creatures make an appearance in the campaign. But this should be very rare, as usually those types of creatures can only be harmed by magic weapons. And with Puritans, since they believed witchcraft was bad, we can assume they probably would not be interested in using a magic weapon, perhaps seeing it as cursed or demonic in nature, even if it's just a sword plus one. So really, the only types of weapons they would use that were magical would probably have to be weapons that had some sort of holy power associated with it. So since there would be a lack of magic weapons, dispatching one of these creatures would be very challenging. So there you have it, some ideas for how to run a Dungeons & Dragons campaign in the time of the Pilgrims. 
So as always, I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it interesting, even if you don't plan on actually using the material in your campaign. So thanks again for tuning in. Have a wonderful day and have a happy Thanksgiving. You have been listening to a production of the Eclectic Media Project. Please check us out on the web at www.eclecticmediaproject.com and on Podbean and iTunes. Find Scott and Chad on Twitter as well at EMP underscore Scott and at Chad EMP. We are on Facebook at Eclectic Media Project. Visit our publishing arm at www.poigamestudio and follow them on Twitter at POIGamestudio. Thank you and we look forward to bringing you more thought-provoking and enjoyable content.